You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. All right. That was great. That was better than the nine. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, my name is Mike M. I'm one of the home groups ministers here. Um, This Sunday will be the fifth Sunday that we are in our Titus series. The letter that Paul wrote to his friend and disciple, Titus, who was sent on mission to the island of Crete. If you got your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. That is page 998 in the Pew Bibles. We'll be there in just a minute. Um, but before that, I do, I just want to welcome all of you again. Um, I especially want to welcome those who are joining us, um, our students and our kids who participated in the students camp and, of course, city camp last week. Can we get a round of applause for them? We're so glad that you're with us today, worshiping together as a family. Um, This week in City Camp, um, we all learned an important foundational truth from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of, right? So kids, we are made in the image of? That's exactly right. We are made in the image of God. Today we're going to be talking about that, but in a slightly different way. And to do that, I'm going to need your help. If you'll humor me, uh, I want to do a quick exercise in sanctified imagination. So uh, this is for everyone, but kids, I'm going to need your help. Older kids, I'm going to need your help as well. Um, So... This might feel a little silly, but I think it'll be worth it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to imagine something, okay? And then as soon as you're able to picture it, as soon as you're able to see it, I want you to raise your hand. How fast can you picture the thing that I say? I want to warn you, some of these are a little unusual, but I believe in you. And I want to remind you that we are God's church, so no cheating, okay? All right. So everyone, close your eyes. And I want you to imagine a dinosaur wearing ice skates. Okay, almost instantaneous. That's pretty good. All right, that was too easy. All right, second one. I want you to imagine, close your eyes. I want you to imagine a robot making pancakes. (laughs) All right, that's great. That was even faster. I think those who went to city camp, instant. All right, great. Last one. Close your eyes. This is the last one. I want you to imagine... The grace of God. What does the grace of God look like? Okay, almost no hands. I'm curious what those who raised their hands think about, right? You can open your eyes. Not that many hands on that one. What's different about that one? You can say, well, I've never seen the grace of God. What is that supposed to look like? But you've probably never seen a dinosaur wearing ice skates either. And as much as I would love to have a robot that makes pancakes, I've never seen that, right? You got those right away, like scary fast, okay? So I hope after looking at Titus today, you'll be able to understand what the grace of God actually looks like. So again, we're going to look at two verses. Let's look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and then we're going to peek into chapter 3. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Paul tells Titus that the grace of God has actually appeared, been made visible to us to look at. And then in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, he says this, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, 
appeared. Paul tells Titus that not only has God's grace appeared, but also God's goodness, God's loving kindness have also appeared. He expects us to know what they look like. So what do they look like? The key is in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he says, he saved us. You see that? It says, he saved, not it, he. Why does it say he? Kids, I just want you to learn this one thing. What does God's grace look like? God's grace has a face, and it's Jesus. Let me say that again. Grace has a face, and it's Jesus, okay? So repeat that with me. Grace has a face. Oh, you can do better than that. Grace has a face. That's good. And it's Jesus. Right? When you imagine God's grace, when you imagine God's goodness, when you imagine God's love, imagine Jesus. We are made in the image of God. But Jesus is not made in the image of God in the way that we are. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What this means is that, like the song we sang, we are like mirrors reflecting the reality of God's heart and character, his being. But Jesus is not a mirror. Jesus is God himself. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. This is why John says in his introduction to his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. These abstract ideas, God's word, God's grace, God's goodness, God's covenantal love, God's glory, and God's truth, these are hard to imagine what they look like. When God wanted to teach us about these things, when God wanted to teach us about his very heart, his very nature, he did not send a scholar or an encyclopedia. He sent his son. Grace has a face, and it's Jesus. But, but more than that, God's word has a face. God's love has a face. God's truth has a face. God's glory has a face. See, like, if I had asked you, imagine, picture Jesus, I mean, picture God, right? What would you have imagined? I think a lot of us, it might be like an old man, you know, with a big white beard and long flowing hair in a robe sitting on a chair in the sky. God does not look like that. The disciples asked Jesus, what does God look like? Could you show us the Father? And Jesus got slightly offended. He said, I've been with you this whole time. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We are made in God's image, but Jesus is God's image. He is the thing that we reflect. Jesus is our God and Savior. So we're going to take a look at what that means and how our hope is grounded in that in two very important ways. Take a look at Titus chapter 2. We're in verse 11 through 13 that Bianca read for us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. What I want you to note is a word that appears twice, the word appeared. Do you see that? In verse 11, verse 13, if you are the type to write in your Bible, I would underline the word appeared in verse 11 and underline the word appearing in verse 13. That is a key word. It's so easy to overlook. This is kind of the core of Paul's argument that holds the entire book of Titus together. And if you write in your Bible, I would write in the margin this word, epiphany. That is what the word appearing is in Greek, epiphany, which means to manifest, to make visible, to see, right? You might be familiar with the idea of epiphany. It's like the aha moment. Like, I get it. I see it, right? That's where this idea comes from. But it has, an, it has a more uh, a core meaning. It has a specific Christian meaning. If you look it up in the dictionary, the Christian meaning comes first, actually. Titus tells us here in chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, that there are two epiphanies, two appearances of God, and that our hope is connected, tethered to both of them. The first epiphany is the foundation of our hope, the ground of our hope. And the second epiphany is the finish line of our hope, the aim. Let me say that again. There are two epiphanies of God, two appearances. The first is the foundation of hope, and the second is the finish line of hope. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this weird word, epiphany. Now, if some of you, if you grew up in a different Christian tradition, let's say you grew up Episcopalian or Anglican or Lutheran or Roman Catholic, you might be very familiar with the word epiphany and the Feast of Epiphany. The rest of us, probably not. So let me do a quick background. So um, the Christmas season, historically and traditionally, is divided into three, three events. The first is the Advent season, which is the, first, the four Sundays prior to Christmas. It's about a month before Christmas. And then the second is Christmas itself, which is observed on December 25th. But there's a third part to Christmas, and that's Epiphany. That's celebrated 13 days after Christmas on January 6th. And what Epiphany observes is the day when the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, was first made visible, first appeared to non-Jews, to Gentiles, the wise men who came from the East. This is called Epiphany Sunday. So uh, I don't know if any of you guys have like a little nativity scene that you put out, you know, during Christmas, little statues, and, you know, there's yeah, there's, there's a little uh, manger and little, little baby Jesus, and there's Joseph and uh, Mary, and there's sometimes like a camel or a cow or something. Um, but there's almost always the three wise men who are kneeling with little gifts, right? Anybody have that in their house? You put it out? What the nativity scene actually is depicting is the epiphany. That's what it is. It's an, it's an epiphany set. So why does this matter, Right? The Cretans had long beheld statues and idols and images of their god, Zeus. And what that, those statues looked like is probably what many people imagine God to look like. It was an old man with a big flowing uh, beard and a giant Santa Claus hair. And, and, and he's sitting in a, in a robe on a chair holding a scepter or a staff or a spear. And there's uh, like um, eagles flying around him. He looks very regal and beautiful. His appearance is lovely and majestic, but his heart and his character were not. You guys remember 
Zeus was a liar. He was a cheater, an adulterer. And so those who beheld him were becoming like him, liars and cheaters and adulterers. But Paul reminds Titus that is not what the true and living God actually looks like. When the true and living God actually appeared to us, he did not appear with lightning and thunder and washboard abs. He was born in poverty, in a manger. There was no room in the inn. As an infant, he lived as a refugee, his parents smuggling him into Egypt to escape Herod. As an adult, he chose to be homeless. He said he had no pillow to rest his head. And finally, when Jesus wanted to show us what God looks like, he was pierced for our our transgressions. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He couldn't even afford a grave. But three days later, he rose in triumph over sin and death. This is what Paul is talking about in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God is not something that you need to imagine, this abstract concept to try to hold on to. It's a person. It's someone you need to know. His name is Jesus, and he has appeared. And what he has brought is not lying or cheating, or injustice, or corruption, or more pain. What he has brought is salvation that he bought with his own blood. Salvation for all people, that is, the Jews, like the shepherds who are keeping watch in the field, and for Gentiles, the wise men who traveled a far distance from the east. He has brought salvation for the Cretans who lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet and also for Americans who are just now reading this letter 2,000 years after it was written. If the grace of God had not appeared to us as the man Jesus Christ, we would have no idea what grace even looked like. We would have to guess, we'd have to dream, we would have to foolishly hope. That is the essence of what human religion is, is guessing and dreaming and hoping about what God might be like and hoping he's nice. But Paul says we don't need to do that. We've seen him. We've spoken with him. We've eaten with him. We've touched his nail-pierced hands. The foundation of our hope is that God demonstrated what he declared in Genesis 3.15, that he would send a savior. This promise that he repeated throughout the scriptures time and again that he would send a savior of saviors, a prophet of prophets, a priest of priests, a king of kings. And when he did that, he sent his own son to love the people who hated him. That's me. To save the people who were going to kill him. This is the ground, the foundation of our hope, the appearance of God, our Savior. Both that he has come, that we've seen him, and that his appearance is that of grace and of truth. Without this, our hope would be nothing. We talked about that two weeks ago. 
But Paul says there's a second epiphany, a second appearance. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here he calls this second epiphany our blessed hope. We are tethered by these two hopes. Imagine asking a random Christian, someone who goes to church, and you ask them, are you a Christian? They say, yeah. And you ask them this question, what is the ultimate Christian hope? More than likely, they'll say something like this. That's easy. It's to go to heaven. Essentially, some variation of, I want to escape this fallen world. That is not the Christian hope. Paul here says that our blessed hope is not that we will leave this broken world, but that our Savior would come to us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus is coming to us to bring salvation and restoration and healing for us and for the world. Our blessed hope is the return of Jesus Christ that will end all pain and all death and wipe away every tear and restore everything that has been stolen from us. That he will grant us physical and bodily resurrection, that we will be restored. All believers being vindicated in their faith. That he will establish a kingdom, not in heaven, but here on earth as it is in heaven. That is the blessed hope. It is unique to our faith. Our blessed hope is not escape. It is restoration. It is renewal. It is regeneration. Regeneration means regenesis. Recreation, a new creation is coming. The kids learned this week four truths. First, God made all people in his image for his glory. But in the fall, all people are made guilty by sin. Paul says because of Christ's first epiphany, God's children are made right with God, and God's children are made new by God. But in the second epiphany, Paul reminds us that our blessed hope is this, that God's children will be made perfect and whole by God. We will be restored. That is our blessed hope. We don't run that is what means that God is a victor. His kingdom does not move. Paul reminds Titus of this blessed hope because just like we live in the space between the two advents, like we said around Christmas, we live in the space between the two epiphanies. The letter of Titus is written to everyone who lives in this space between the two appearances of Christ. That's why it's just as applicable today on the other side of the world as it was to the Cretan Christians in the first century. 
We live in the same age, this present age. And he's answering this question, what do we do in the meantime? And Paul answers that the Holy Spirit is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what the elders from chapter 1 and the non-elders who have elder-like character in chapter 2 have in common what they embody and exemplify, that they are steadfast in this hope. That they don't grow weary thinking that Christ has forgotten them, that he's forgotten his promises, that he is faithless like so many people can be. Believer, life can be so hard. I know some of you have had a very difficult week a very difficult month, a very difficult year. Paul encourages us, do not grow weary in doing good because the foundation of our hope is the appearing of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the finish line of our hope is that Jesus will appear again. He is faithful. Our hope is built on these two appearances of God. I want to remind you again that grace has a face. His name is Jesus. Paul says our blessed hope is that one day we will see him face to face. We will see him. That's our blessed hope. You can build your life on that. Those of you who are struggling with hurt, struggling with hard things, just know this. Placing your faith in Jesus is not foolish. It is so wise because in the midst of the storms and the winds of life, the thing that keeps us steadfast is that Jesus is faithful. He keeps every promise. He always has and he always will. We will not be shaken. Of course, we're standing on the rock. We're tethered by an anchor that cannot be moved. In closing, I just want to encourage all of you and exhort all of you with what Paul says to Titus at the end of chapter 2. He says this. This is for all the kids here, for the students, for the young adults and the older adults. Paul says this. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one pass by this hope. Let's pray. Dear Lord, God, we thank you, God, that you are faithful, that one day we will see you face to face. God, that we know what your glory and your grace and your hope, Lord, all of these things, your truth, what they look like because we've seen Jesus and he is beautiful. He's shown us your very heart. Lord, we thank you that, that when he showed us your face, you were not scowling, you didn't have sharp eyes. Lord, but we saw the face of kindness and mercy. Oh, Lord, that we would cling to this. Lord, that we would hold on because you are faithful. Lord, your promises are true. Lord, we ask that you would sustain us with your Holy Spirit. All these things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.